Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. Welcome to episode 11 for season 7. As always, I am your host, Janie Clayton, here with my groovy co-host, Drew Freeman. Dude. This episode was recorded on Sunday, February 11th, 2018, and is sponsored by Rollbar. Thank you to them for sponsoring the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. On this episode, we welcome back the always awesome Tammy Koran. Tammy is an independent artist and game developer who produces tutorial content for lynda.com along with raywenderlich.com. Tammy is going to introduce us to the wonderful world of Gameplay Kit. And later in the second half, Drew is going to talk to us about globalization and localization, internationalization, and all the otherizations. <laughs> Welcome, Tammy. Thanks, Janie. Welcome back, Tammy. Thank you, Drew. How are you guys doing? It's snowing. Well, to be honest, we're recording in the morning today, so I'm I'm not awake. Time to get up. We've got work to do. Get up. Stand up. We have a ton of work to do because we, we're going to deep dive our way actually looking at some of the, the gritties in, in Gameplay Kit. Is this right? I that's correct. See, now what a lot of people don't understand is Gameplay Kit, even though it's called Gameplay Kit, there are aspects to it that you can use that don't have anything to do with creating a game. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> imagine that. No, it's true. It's true. If you were to highlight sort of like the, the three or four or just the, the high level text that you get out of Gameplay Kit, what is... Before Tammy gets to that, which might be a better topic a little bit later in the episode, maybe she could kind of give us an overview of what Gameplay Kit is and like why it was developed by Apple. Well, I don't know why it was developed by Apple. Although I have, I do have a guess as to why it is. You know, we've seen over the years. We talked about it in the in the last episode with Sprite Kit and and uh, Scene Kit that they've been adding more and more gaming type functionality to their core. You know, and they even added AR Kit, which brings it up a whole nother level. But with Gameplay Kit, they've they basically taken the really complex game design patterns, right? The, what you would do for inheritance, for example, or creating your state machines and things like that. So you, you used to have this complex set of coding that you as the developer were responsible for. And with Gameplay Kit, it kind of takes all of that and simplifies it for you. So in Gameplay Kit, you've got a core set of functionality and features. You've got randomization, You've got entities and components. You've got state machines. You've got the min-max strategist, which is basically like a form of AI. Same thing with pathfinding, agents, goals, and behaviors, and rule systems. Those are all part of the AI in Gameplay Kit. So, like for, for some for people out there that don't necessarily do game development, one thing that I got in that I, I kind of had to wrap my head around when I got into game development was this idea that there's like a bunch of different areas of knowledge that are all kind of like loosely connected but not really so like when you're going and creating a game like you have to create all of your the the, the visual objects that you see and you interact with but that they kind of exist in their own bubble so like sprite kit's really good at creating the sprites and and touches and animations and things that you can actually see but then when if you actually want them to do something that that's an entirely like different set of skills of writing like a bunch of other code that is completely separate from what it is that you see so like like the gameplay kit stuff's kind of responsible for the 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 back end mechanics and logic and other stuff that isn't visual correct yeah it's 100% not visual. Everything with Gameplay Kit is all about the logic and the game mechanics. And, and you know, I, I said at the beginning of the show that Gameplay Kit is not just for people making games. It's specific, specifically speaking about the randomization component 
with that. You know, when you think about a situation where you need something that's random, you could use the old method that gives you limited information and you've got to write these big complex things and be responsible for making this thing look random. Or you can use randomization and you don't have to use that in a game. It, looking at that, since you said that, you know, the, the sprite kit's giving you all of the draw it and put it and place it and, ga and gameplay kit is giving you that state machine and the, the collisions. Are we almost looking at a, a sort of even a, an MVC kind of concept here? in these different frameworks. The one will handle the look and the response of where am I, and the other one is handling the actual logic of the controlling of it. Not necessarily. I mean, you have to think about what it is Gameplay Kit was designed to do. The only thing that it was designed to do was make it easier for developers to make games. I mean, if, if I were to give it one sentence, why did Apple make Gameplay Kit? To make it easier for people to make games. <laughs> and that means, you know, if we were to talk about state machines... Think about what you have to do in a state. You have to decide what are my sprites doing. What are you know? If, if we take a simple player setup, okay, you've got a sprite player, and you've got a situation where that player is standing on the screen and not moving, and then you've got a situation where the player is running, right? So those are two different states. You might have an idle state, and you might have a running state, or even a walking state. And each one of those, your sprite is going to run through a certain set of animations, right? You're going to have maybe, let's say, five for running, three for walking, and, and two for an idle state. You're breathing in and a breathing out for your sprite. You could go through and you could work with the update statement in in the scene and, and do all this big if statements and have your own thing to control, your own variable to control what state that is. Or you could use Gameplay Kit and use a state machine. So what happens is you set up a, a state machine to run the game state, and that would be the GK state. So you would have an active GK state, a play, uh, excuse me, an a idle GK state, a running GK state, and a walking GK state. And you would set up a state machine and you would say this state machine controls which state we're currently in. And then when you switch the player from walking to running, it will automatically check to see what the state is. And you set up all the different animations for that state. Mm, okay. now, I'm, I, I'm looking through the gameplay kit documentation and they've added a lot of stuff over the last few years. Like I, it looks significantly different to me than it did. Um, like even last time I looked at it like six months ago, like they've added a lot more, they've added stuff for uh, generating noise and creating like obstacles for um, like pathfinding. I never got into the noise stuff cause I haven't played with, I don't want to say it's new cause it's not that new. Um, Mostly where I've played with Gameplay Kit would be the randomization, the entities and components, the state machines, the min-max strategist, a little bit with the pathfinding and the agents, goals, behaviors, and rule systems, but not... I don't think I've done anything. Maybe just like a handful of stuff with the procedural. I, I'm not the game developer in the group. I know, uh, Tammy, you've done endless work on this and tutorials. Janie, you've done books. So I, I get to play the mental moron here. And there were a lot of terms. And I'm just keeping up with them. Janie, you, you'd mentioned noise. Can you explain? Because for me, noise is, is either a badly tuned television channel or white noise. Can you just explain that? Uh, noise is a, a really important aspect of um, like 
dealing with, especially with uh, graphics, like um, being able to create like what look like randomly generated stuff is incredibly complicated. And like with noise, like you use that for things in sound and you use it for things like visually, like I'm a little bit more familiar with how you do it with sound. But like I had um, like a teacher who had several different layers of like sound, like white noise that he was able to use to to emulate um, the sound of like waves crashing against the shore. Okay. So like like the, being able to procedurally generate noise to include in textures and include in um, sounds and include in stuff is a really like it's it's been a complicated thing to do, but it's some it's kind of a similar thing because there's only a couple of different algorithms for it. So being able to just instead of having to write your own like Perlin noise shader in Metal, being able to just kind of go in and say like take Apple's built-in Perlin noise thing, use one line of code and have it just work okay. is, is a helpful thing to be able to do. So I was going in the right direction with white noise. Okay, and that's the whole point of gameplay kit. It takes something that you would have to sit there and think about and you know write this long bunch of code to work and then gameplay kit just simplifies it i mean you, you said something drew just before with the mbc and you have to not think that way when you're dealing with games and and uh, gameplay kit specifically if we were to talk about the entities and components for a moment yes please please do that's one that um i've looked at but i don't really have a lot of familiarity with and i would like one thing i was like earlier when, when drew was asking you for the top three that you thought were, were helpful like like that was one that i, I definitely wanted to ask about and I, I did notice that some of these seem to be more helpful than others so so go on with the <laughs> yes yeah, so, so the the top three would be randomization Entities and components and state machines, right? Because that's really, if, if you're making a basic game, that's where you want to start with gameplay kit. Obviously, randomization because you need to do something random, okay? So you create yourself a source and you create yourself a distribution pattern. You say, I, you know, you could, making six sided dice, for example, takes one line of code, all right? So that randomization is very easy. If you want to get into gameplay kit, start there. When you go to the next thing, state machines would be the slightly more complicated, right? Because again, you're, you're just, you're basically dealing with two, two APIs, the, the GK state and GK state machine. With entities and components, it gets a little more complex because think about the old days when you used to create a game. You would have, I don't know, you'd have a, um, an enemy and you would have a player and the enemy and the player both can walk. They can both run. They can both shoot. Um, but maybe, the enemy, there's four different types of enemies and this one can shoot this way and that one can shoot this way. And so these, all these different things. And I, I'm sort of picturing in my head Galaga. Yeah. I was picturing Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah. Either, either one of those, but what you would end up in the typical inheritance type configuration is you might have this one giant super class where, you know, cause everyone says, if they're going to share these common things, then throw them into a superclass. But as you start to add more of these entities, right, into your game, they might share more and more things. And you, you end up with this huge, wild superclass because you want everything to do everything. And it gets unwieldy really quick. So with entities and components, you're able to create, like when the last game I made, I had an entity for the player and I had an entity for the enemy. And then I had components to control the visuals for those entities. And I had a firing mechanism to control the, you know, the ability to fire and a, and a um, movement component. And it's kind of like, like an erector set. You can take this tiny component and you just plug it in to the entity. And then you can add different components. You can remove different components. You can do it during runtime. So you're able to take things on and off. 
And then what's nice about that is you've got these tiny little components that are, they basically live in their own little world, right? You know, they're not part of a super class. So I've got this tiny little wall component and this tiny little visual component. And instead of having both of those in a giant class that says, you know, my big giant class that I can't control. I've got this tiny little class for walking and animation, and I got this tiny little class for the, the visuals. Now, see, the, the entity and component stuff reminds me a lot of the, the arguments for protocol-oriented programming in Swift. And I feel like, like so I, I know Gameplay Kit came out before Swift, and I feel like some of the um, the components of Gameplay Kit, like the entity and components and like the state machines, like I feel like a lot of those are solved by using different parts of Swift. So like instead of creating like a state machine, you can create an enum in Swift, or you can create like protocols instead of entities and components. Am I like thinking of this wrong? Because I just, I feel kind of like, like, it was, like, like a lot of the, the the later Cocoa frameworks were kind of created to get around the limitations of Objective-C. I look at it as it's more like Legos, right? You know, you, you can have this giant masterpiece and you can build it with these tiny little pieces. And that's how I view gameplay kit. I don't, I don't know about the whole, is it based on on uh, Swift or anything, um, or Swift based on the thinking behind Gameplay Kit. All I know is that I've watched this progression with Apple, you know, start to pull in this gaming stuff, right? The more entertainment stuff. I don't want to just say gaming because now they've got AR Kit and they've got Metal and that stuff isn't specifically for gaming. You can jump to it quickly. Yeah, I'd use that for games, but... It's more about entertainment and they're adding more and more stuff to it and they're making it more, they're making it easier for people to develop that kind of stuff. Well, like, I think that was a thing that happened after Steve Jobs passed away because I think that he um, personally was very much against the idea of the the iPhone and the Mac or whatever being entertainment systems. And so, like, I, I think that, like, after he left, a lot of the resistance within Apple to adding things like Scene Kit and Gameplay Kit and um, the leaderboards and all this, I think all of that stuff kind of kind of went away when uh, he passed away. Like, there was an internal thing where that was not a, a priority that he had. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I know a lot of people who like you can you can absolutely 100% write a game without using gameplay kit. You know, I'm working with a student right now and you know there there is a bit of a learning curve. You have to learn the APIs if you're going to use them. You can't just run off to Stack Overflow and copy something and paste it and hope it's going to work. I mean, you can start there, but you have to understand what you're doing. You have to to know what those things do. And if you're just getting into gaming and trying to write your own game, number 1, don't start with Gameplay Kit because you're adding a level of complexity that you don't need. Start with something real simple like Sprite Kit. Start with the, the um, what do they call it? the most viable product. And that means if all you can do is put a box on the screen and get it to run from point A to point B, do it. And don't use Gameplay Kit. When you start to get a little bit more comfortable with programming and making games, then Take the the player class that you made, just regular old pe- player class in Swift, and turn that into an entity, and then go from there. But j- j- just to be clear, like Sprite Kit doesn't include um, classes and components and stuff like that to do things like AI or randomization. It is in compl- it is completely visual. It is about placing sprites on the screen and and running animations on them and interacting with things visually. And that like if you were going to build like you know the the um, any type of logic not using Gameplay Kit, you'd use either um, Objective C or Swift. 
left. Yeah. If I remember correctly for Sprite Kit, about the, the closest you get, does Sprite Kit do a Sprite Collision? Oh, yeah. You've, it's got a whole physics. So while it's drawing, it'll also tell you these two sprites have come together, which is something you would feed back to a game. But I, I just wanted to make sure that that's set. In the, I was looking at the right concept in the right framework. Yeah. I, I, just, I just wanted to clarify on all that stuff, because like, um, when I got into doing stuff with Sprite Kit and like Gameplay Kit, like I had a lot of confusion about what the responsibility was of each framework. And so like I would I assumed that certain parts of Gameplay Kit were responsible for things that they weren't responsible for, and it caused a lot of confusion and frustration on my part because I couldn't figure out how to get it to do what I wanted it to do because I didn't understand what it was supposed to be doing. So like you had mentioned the, um, the, the, the strategists and the, all the gameplay AI stuff. Um, I, when I started working with that, like I saw there were a bunch of things like game kit, play kit, player and rules and whatever. And I thought that I had to build all of my rules into the strategist, but that's not how that works. You have to have all of the, the rules and the models and everything separate from that. And that it has a very specific bubble, like, you know, walled off functionality that doesn't touch like everything else. So like, it's really important to kind of go in and know what something is or isn't doing for you so that you can avoid a lot of frustration. Yeah. And let me, you know, you talk about frustration and game development and things like that. And, and I see it all the time. I, I do it myself all the time. I'm a big offender of it, but you decide you wake up one day or maybe you've been thinking about it for 20 years and you're like, I want to make a game <laughs> and I want to make this big, epic blockbuster triple A game. And this is my huge idea. And this is what I want to do. And you go out and you start it. And six months later, you're nowhere and you're frustrated and you don't understand because you, you tried to take off and bite off more than you can chew. So what I always recommend to people is start with something small. Start with, like I said, the most viable product, which would be getting a scene. Minimum viable product. Minimum viable product. So start with that. You get into Sprite Kit. You learn how to put nodes onto a, onto a scene. You learn what a scene is. You learn how to put nodes on there. You learn how to work with SK actions. You learn how to work with the physics. Then you move on to the next step and you pull in Gameplay Kit. And Gameplay Kit, again, is more about the logic. If you need to have a character randomly appear on the screen or you have a dice game, I mean, with the randomization, you can create, like I said, a six-sided dice or a billion-sided dice with one line of code. You can determine how to pull numbers out of that distribution. You take it another step further and you turn, like I said, you turn your, your player class that you just wrote in Swift and you turn that into an entity and you start taking apart that super class that you may have had because you were trying to share everything between the players and the enemies and you turn those into components and you just, it's a stepped process. If you don't do it that way, you're going to explode your brain and never finish anything. So so let me just really quickly jump in here because from what I'm getting, uh, it sounds like one of the easiest pieces to bite out of game pay gameplay kit is the randomization. You know, it, it's a very easy piece of it to say, okay, I need to add random. After that, from what I'm getting is the entities. And then beyond that, understanding how the state machining game in the kit works. You're close. You're real close. You're going to start with randomization. You're talking about two, two APIs there, GK random source and GK random distribution. distribution. Yeah. 
So you've got those two. After that, you're looking at state machines, right? Because that... Okay, then the state machine. Right. And again, you can use state machines in other things besides gaming, Mm -hmm. just like you can use randomization in other things besides gaming. And with state machines, you're looking at the GK state and the GK state machine. And those are the only two that you're really having to deal with. Tammy, I've got to put to you the standard question that comes up when we talk about frameworks. If we have Apple engineers listening which we can always hope or dread. What is your wish list? What what do you think gameplay kit is either missing or could use or you would just like to see if you if you had that magical wish list that might happen? I have to be honest with you. Gameplay kit has everything I need in it to build a game in its current form. You just made an Apple engineer very happy. Listen, I have I have never run into a situation where gameplay kit didn't do what I expected it to do when I asked it to do it. It's just always worked. I don't know that they can add anything to it. I hope they do. My mind will be blown. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's exactly what I didn't know I needed. Thank you. (laughs) Well, like I said, you've just made some Apple engineers and or project managers incredibly happy because they're like, yay. Uh, Thanks for all that really awesome information, Tammy. Like I I looked at Gameplay Kit a while ago, but like, again, like I said, every time I I go in there, there's more and new interesting stuff. And I'm really enthused and excited about going in and trying to work with some of the new, new components that they added to to gameplay kit. I really appreciate you coming out here and giving us an overview of that for everybody at home who doesn't necessarily have a lot of time to go in and figure out how to make games or deal with gameplay kit. Next up, we're going to have Drew walking through the basics of localization and globalization. But first, a couple of words from Rollbar. The Right When to Lick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. I'm excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Relying on users to report errors, searching through log files, trying to debug issues, it's all such a waste of time. With Rollbar, you can instantly know what's broken and why. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors. Rollbar detects when code breaks and provides the full stack trace and diagnostic data. Send error alerts to Slack or HipChat or automatically create new issues in Jira, Pivotal Tracker, Trello, etc. Adding Rollbar can be as easy as adding one line of code. Rollbar also supports DSIM and ProGuard, so you can automatically symbolicate iOS or Android crashes. Now, it's loved by developers at companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash Wenderlich. And we'd like to thank Rollbar once again for sponsoring this episode of the Ray Wendelick Podcast. Up next is Drew walking through the basics of localization and globalization. So he's going to talk about how to release your apps in United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru. Oh, no, no, Peru. no. We're going to stop you right there. No, no. <laughs> that, that, that could kill 15 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because so many apps... Um, will just release in English, and especially if you're releasing in the United States, not covering the basis, uh, the basics of at least Spanish, let alone the fact that there is a, a good number of people in the United States where you've got French, if you're up north for Canada, if you've got uh, an, a, a Chinese, Japanese areas. There is a lot 
of additional revenue on an app that you cut out if you have not made sure that people who may not necessarily have the app running in English will get the most out of it. And then the problem is that beyond just the English changing it to Spanish or French, there's so many other little things. And the internationalization that Apple has put into its technologies is not new. This is something that has been important to them way back when. And by way back when, I mean pre-OS 10. I, I remember loading up Mac OS 6 and 7 in French, in Spanish, even in right-to-left languages like Hebrew. So this is a core thing to the technologies. Well, I, I know back in the 80s and early 90s that um, the Asian market was a huge component of Apple's um, market share because they were one of because at that point I think like Windows and Microsoft and IBM weren't doing the the kanji or supporting like the actual like like localization of the Japanese and Chinese languages and that Apple was doing that and for, so for a really long time they had that as a captive market but then like I think like mid 90s or so Microsoft kind of like got on the ball with that and figured out that was the thing they needed to do and that was around the time that Apple's share like really plummeted because they kind of lost all their professional advantages that they had but they were an early adopter of this all the way back like from the beginning. Yeah, I would say the two things that Apple was uh, was an amazing early adopter of uh, was doing internationalization and doing um, assistive technologies. These were two things that effectively brought in I don't want to say niche audiences, but audiences that aren't being served. And most importantly, by leveraging these technologies, like I said, at its at its most important, you are bringing in more of an audience for your app. And one of the most wonderful things now is when you start the new Xcode project, you start the new project, it's already wired to be localized. It's already set. You, you, uh, you have a base localization, and that's where all of your work gets done. And you just simply say, okay, I'm going to also be adding in languages. And one of the things that you should do when you start the project is make sure that you've got the base localization set, and you can also set the developmental language. Um, and this was uh, inspired by a recent set of screencasts by Katie and Jesse Catterwall, who, who really gave a quick, great intro to these technologies. And if you want to see how the base localization and how your uh, developmental language is set up, you definitely want to look at those. Um, but there are several things that, that had been difficult that Apple is continually improving. And there's that question of, well, where is the line between internationalization, globalization, localization? There, there, there's a lot, there's overlap, but there's also some very individual pieces to that. You have to consider the fact that first you need to make your app friendly for localization. And what I mean by friendly for localization is there's so many traps that you can fall into that hardwire your app that you'll have to go back and undo what you've done to make it acceptable. And the biggest one that always snags everybody is strings, your text. Everybody will put text into code. Everybody will put the specific lines of text into their storyboards, into their zibs. And this is immediately the kiss of death because if you're going to make it another language, even if it's another Roman Latin letter-based text, you've still got to have 
that code switch in there. So like, one question I have is like, I'm, I'm interested in like localizing my apps, but like if I wanted to be able to sell my Apple like over in China, like do I need to find a translator that will translate all of my text over to chi- to Mandarin? Like, like how do you, like, like I understand like, like that, that, it, that they've tried to make it easy to include a lot of different languages and localization stuff, but like how, how do you do that in practicality if you're like, you're like me and you live in rural Wisconsin and you only know other people from rural Wisconsin? Exactly. And that is, that's one of the best questions because localization technologies are there to make it so that the app can put the text that you need for a country. It will do the switching. It will do the substitution. But as for knowing what text you want in there, computer does not speak English. You're giving it words. So the way to give it the right words is to find somebody who has the right words. And let me tell you, Google Translate will get you laughed at. There are companies that are specifically translation companies. You send them the text. And one of the things they point out is when you build up a strings file, which uh, I'll I'll go into, there's an area in the strings file for comments. And uh, Katie puts it really well that if your statement uses, say, the word fly, you want to be able to put something in for the translators they know are you talking about flapping are you talking about an insect so you know verb versus noun the comments are there but you you want to go through a translation service or even if you have somebody close to you who is fluent in both languages who will do it for you as a, a, a as just a payment job i'm only fluent in sarcasm which i believe is now going to be added in for uh, ios 12 i, I think uh, sarcasm.lproj is coming huzzah <laughs> so the question is okay so i don't necessarily know what my strings will be i may be uh affluent enough to know that well with french and English and Spanish, words are pretty much going to look about the same-ish. And by same-ish, I mean similar lettering, maybe, um, maybe an accent mark or two, maybe about the same length. And then along comes German, where one word in English may be five letters, and that same word in German may be 730 letters. Or I'm beginning to deal with Chinese and Japanese, where I'm now going into a combination of kanji, hiragana, katakana, glyph style that is a different writing style. Then you get into right to left. You get your Arabic and your Hebrew where everything is flipped. So understanding what your text in a box and by a box, I mean where you want that text to paint on the screen is very important. I, I did want to put in one one caveat that, like, generally speaking with Apple stuff, like, if you want to do localization and you add localization to stuff, like, it's very difficult to remove it later. So, like, if you had, like, a buddy that knew uh, the, the Tamil language that went and, like, you know, translated into Tamil, but then you guys had a fight and you're never going to talk to him ever again, you still have to maintain all of that, that localization inside of your application because you can't pull it out just because you're not friends with that person anymore. <laughs> it's, it's actually gotten... It, I mean, anything can be pulled and pushed in an app. It just gets tricky. Um, you can pull your LProjs and you can change your plists to basically say, ignore that localization. And eventually you can unwind a localization out. In general, that's going to be a difficult practice because once you've released an app, now you're basically saddled with the fact of we are no longer supporting language X. And that's where, where you really want to 
Yeah, again, we I talked about having a friend who's fluent, but it's a it's a business thing. If you are selling an app, that is a business expense. One thing that I find kind of interesting with the localization and globalization stuff is that there's like different series based on whatever like like country or language that you're speaking in. Because like I had a friend who was from Austria that complained that there was not an Austrian Siri, there was just a German Siri, and that they didn't pronounce things the way that they would in Austria. But it was since it was all still German, like like it was like oh, we just need we just need a German Siri. <laughs> I think I saw that they had like Klingon as a as a voice to text option somewhere. <laughs> Klingon should always be an option. Remember also that while Apple has a very strong support of languages, it also has a very strong support of regions. Because when you say, I am going to do an English version of my app, already you're making mistakes to certain English speakers. I have always been a weird person. I have, as somebody born and raised in the United States, always used British spellings. I spell color, C-O-L-O-U-R. Now, you have to remember right off the bat... You're wrong. You know, our guest previously was Keith, so he'll argue with you. But the whole thing there is that you now have a language and you have regional variants. So you, this is why you'll see EN or EN underscore GB for Great Britain. I mean, so you have to make that awareness also with those regions. And one of the great technology, uh, NS Locale or Locale, depending if you're Swift or Objective-C, is the one that actually says, well, okay, here's how number separation is done. Here's where periods versus commas go. Because when you're formatting a number and you use number formatter, you have number formatters that can use the locale. So you make sure that your numbers are appearing correctly. So let me talk about understanding how to get that text into the box. And the word that you'll hear if you're not familiar with localization is called pseudoloc or pseudo-localization. And you can get to that very easily if you're editing a storyboard. You go into, uh, you use the, the dual pane view, you make the second pane preview, and in the bottom right corner, even if you have not turned on localization, you'll see a pop-up that should have your development language in the bottom right corner. And then you get a choice of pseudolocs, which are double length, accented, or bounded. The double length effectively takes whatever text you put out there and doubles it. And the reason for that is if you have a word that in English is 10 characters and in German is 55 characters, are you trailing it? Are you condensing it? Are you, uh, are you using shrink font size if word gets too big? Because if you're using static width, you are going to be crunching out words. The second one, accented characters, is great because we tend to forget that if you have, say, the word apple that's capitalized and you've got your bounding box set up if you're dealing with a language that has a tilde over the A or uh, the symbol, which I can never remember, I think it's Cédia, I could be wrong, that's under the C in Garçon in French, you get descenders that may go lower than you're expecting. So having the accented character pseudo-loc is a way to look at your, your language as if somebody had messed with it and put lots of characters in. And then finally, bounded characters puts brackets on it. And that basically shows you this is the edge of where this text may appear. So getting the text is really important. And the nice thing is it does work in left to right and right to left so that you can see where the shape of that is. One of the other test methods um, that used to be a pain in the neck for me because I didn't know that there was an alternative was changing the language on my device, on my iOS device or my platform to run in that language. Because to run your 
crap in that language on your iOS device, you say, well, change the OS to now show everything in French or German or Chinese or Arabic. And I can tell you, I am absolutely fluent. I'm barely fluent in English. So once I change my OS and look at my app in Japanese, I know enough Japanese to go, yeah, that looks right. And I think that's right. And now how the hell do I change it back to English? And I can tell you, I, in Arabic, I have, I have spent a long time trying to switch my phone back to something where it was usable. But there is now, in the scheme editor in Xcode, a way to set these things up very easily so that when you run in the simulator, it just happens for that run. There are three things, and that is you can actually put a check mark that shows my age. You, you, you put an X in the box and say that you want non-localized strings to show up for debugging purposes. If it does not go through a localization API or it's not going through a localization string set, then it shows up and it's a good way to catch things that are wrong. Using the pseudo loc also is a great way to catch things that if they go wrong, because if they don't look changed, then you know that you missed something. You can change the language that the device boots up in, in the simulator just for that app. You can actually say, when I'm running my app in the simulator, in the run set of the scheme settings in Xcode, you say, okay, when I run it next time, run the OS in French. And that's great because the because Xcode's in your developmental language, and you can basically say, just for this run, do that, and then you don't have to deal with trying to find everything else in the language you may not be fluent in. And as you mentioned, Janie, you can set not just the language, but you can also set the region. So you can set variants, um, again, in that run scheme setup in Xcode. And for me, that for me that's, that's really a, a very valuable thing. Can you create your own languages and have these languages offered? to your users in your app? I do not know whether or not you can add your own extension. I think that is an OS-based thing that you have to apply to one of the languages that's there. That being said, I have put in either fake languages. I had a friend who made constructed languages, and I had them translate my app that I was working on at one time into their language. And then I basically shoved in and said, well, if you want to see your app and your language switch to Swiss or switch to Flemish. Gotcha. Now, whether or not you could get away with publishing that, I don't know. I, I haven't looked recently, but if that functionality isn't there, and I, I always ask everybody else, that's on my wish list. I'd like to be able to say, there is now an app on your phone that uses a language that wasn't previously listed in the OS. The Klingon and Elvish. <laughs> I, I honestly, I think Klingon should be one of the one of the things. One of the things I love looking at is Google Translate uh, for the list of languages because Google has a great sense of humor on that. You can translate to Klingon, to Sindarin, to Swedish Chef, <laughs> to Pirate, Arr. and I, I I just think that's wonderful because I would love to release I would love to release my app in 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 either uh, Pirate or or Sindarin just just for for the geek point. One of the things I want to focus on for internationalization in the UI goes beyond the text, and that is the layout and the imagery. We think about left to right text, and when you start looking into things like Arabic and Hebrew, you start dealing with a whole new list of things to worry about. One of the funny things is that they've changed the concept of the table between macOS and iOS. In the table views in macOS, you have multiple columns. And while a lot of the UI 
flips when the region or when the settings have changed to right to left. Your macOS tables don't because your macOS table columns are populated by your code. iOS, that's irrelevant because you're actually building cells. Once you have a language that is turned on right to left, the OS does a very good job of flipping a lot of the controls. The on-offs flip. The status bar flips. And likewise, you should be aware of that. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of things, a lot of people look at storyboards and see leading and trailing as, quote, left and right. But this is a time to realize that leading and trailing is actually in auto layout. And auto layout is a godsend for localization because leading means coming in from the side that the user would start reading and trailing is going toward the side that the user is looking at. So if you're using leading and trailing correctly in auto layout, when the system flips, it's going to flip your UI. Hence another reason to do what Apple wants you to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When Apple says we really think you should do X, really do X because it, it will benefit you in ways that they can't fully summarize in a five-day developmental conference. So what does that mean to you? Well, that also means that there are certain controls that if you're doing your own UI controls, you may need to flip them. You may need to have flipped artwork because it doesn't make sense if the pleasant looking person is facing into your text on one thing and facing away from your text on the other. Well, then they wouldn't be very friendly. No, but the nice thing is that, first of all, images are easily flipped. That, that's a fairly easy UI API. And it's also very easy at the time that you're pulling your image to do a call for NS apps user interface layout direction, which will tell you if it's left to right or right to left. And if you're going to put something down, you can say, oh, wait, I'm right to left. I'll flip the image or I'll use a different image. Well, cool. Like I had, like I kind of knew about the localization stuff, but I didn't think about the issues of if you had to do like um, right to left or left to right or thinking about the fact that you know, like in German, everything's like 11 billion characters long. Like these are things that like you kind of like you're, you're aware of, but you don't necessarily think about. So thank you so much for taking the time during the podcast to uh, bring this to our attention and talk about some of the uh, challenges that you know people like me who live in the middle of like rural Wisconsin <laughs> don't necessarily <laughs> think about because we're not exposed to people who write and speak differently than we do. So that wraps up another episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Thank you for joining us again, Tammy. It's a pleasure as always. And thanks again to Rule Bar for sponsoring the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time. <laughs>